You can be turning to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And let's review a little bit about what we're doing. As I had mentioned a few, well, each week that we've covered so far, which has been two, about how these, uh, this series of messages germinated. Uh, it actually began when I was meditating on the scripture, thinking about 1 Kings chapter 13, when uh, the man of God that is sent to the northern kingdom to preach judgment against an altar built by King Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, and he was told by the Lord that he was not to wait after he pronounced his judgment. He was to go on back to uh, Judah where he was from. And so the man of God went, he pronounced his judgment, he was faced by the king, and he still stood and was on his way home when an older king, an older prophet, I'm sorry, had heard about the man of God that had come. By the way, this prophet is known, is called more the man of God than any other man in the Old Testament. We don't know his name. God doesn't tell us who he was. The term man of God does not mean that the man is perfect. Doesn't mean that the man doesn't make mistakes or make bad judgments. This man of God did. He made a decision not to obey the Lord. Now, admittedly, when the old prophet heard that the man of God had come, pronounced his judgment, everything that had taken place at the altar of Bethel, that his boys had come home, told him what had taken place, and he said, you go and tell the man of God that God has told me that he's to come and eat at our house. When they went to the man of God and they told him what their dad had said, uh, he said, but I am, God said, I'm to go back. I'm not to eat with anyone. I'm not to stay with anyone. And the old man said, but God told me you need to come. And then the Bible says an amazing thing. It says, but the prophet lied. Prophets do lie. Preachers do lie. Men of God do lie. And men of God do disobey God from time to time. Now, I'm not slamming men of God. I'm just simply saying that's part of the human problem. Humans, I don't care if they're religious or not religious, do wrong. It's just a flesh problem. And that's described for us in the Bible. God does not hide the warts on God's people. He puts it out there for us to see so that hopefully we'll understand. Bible says it's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in men. It's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes. Now, I was going to preach a message on that story. And as I came up with a message, I, I came up with a man who prophesied, a king who cried, a prophet who lied, and a man of God that died. And I thought, well, that'd be pretty good. I'll preach on that. The, the problem with it, though, is I'm starting too late in the story. Because the beginning of the story is the reason why all this came about anyway. And that goes back to chapter 11. In chapter 11, when you find the king appointed by God, Solomon, not only forsaking the word of God, but even forsaking some of the very word that he had written to his son, Rehoboam, in the book of Proverbs. Now, we know that the book of Proverbs is about wisdom. And he had walked contrary to God's wisdom. God had told all the kings that they were to read through the Bible and not just read through the Bible that they had so that they knew it. And several times during their reign, 
but they were also not to multiply horses to themselves. They were not to multiply gold, and they were not to multiply wives. Well, obviously, Solomon did that in abundance. Because of that, the Bible says in chapter 11 and verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord his God. And so God pronounced a judgment upon Solomon. Now, he would remain king, but the king under, but I'm sorry, the kingdom under his son would be divided. His son would lose the ten tribes to the north, and he would only be able to keep Judah. Now, Jeroboam comes on the scene. And Jeroboam ends up leading the country away. And he does that. The story actually takes place in chapter 12 about the kingdom becoming divided. But you remember last week we looked at, and I added three more things to what I had had earlier. Wisdom denied. That's what took place with Solomon and Rehoboam. And then the king's pride. And the king's pride is not just Solomon, but Rehoboam and Jeroboam. All of them showed their pride. And God resisteth the proud but he giveth grace unto the humble. And so we saw that all three kings showed their own pride against the word of God. And now we come to the nation's divide. So Solomon is there. The people, the leadership of the northern, northern kingdom that has not divided yet, but they go up and ask Solomon, ask Rehoboam, if he would ease all this toil and work that they put that Solomon had put on them. And so Rehoboam went to the old counselors, didn't go to God, he went to the old counselors. They said, if you'll make it easier for them, they'll serve you all their, all their life. But he doesn't take their counsel. He goes to the young men, just as people do today. They go to someone who has the same experiences, who only knows what they know. And if they're wanting to impress you, they'll agree with you. He didn't take the counsel of the old men. And that's when we come to this story right here. And notice beginning in verse 16. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. But as for the children of Israel, which dwelt in the cities of Judah... Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute, and all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and all the tribe of Benjamin, a hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men which were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam the son of Solomon. But the word of the Lord came unto Shemaiah the man of God saying speak unto Rehoboam the son of Solomon king of Judah and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the remnant of the people saying thus saith the Lord ye shall not go up nor fight against your brethren the children of Israel. 
Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore to the word of the Lord and returned to the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, they hearkened therefore the word of the Lord and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. Then Rehoboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt there and went out from thence and built Penuel. We're talking about the nation's divide. Now, we said we started with Solomon. It was his wickedness that got the whole thing going. That does not mean that Rehoboam was not responsible for his wickedness. The Bible says he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and all Judah with him. Uh, he's responsible for his wickedness. Jeroboam was responsible for his wickedness. I'm reminded of the scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 13 that declares better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will, let's see, who will no more be admonished. In other words, you can get so high on yourself that you don't take admonishment anymore. Even if you're a king, a poor and wise, wise child's better than you. And what does the Bible say in Proverbs 1, 7? Solomon had written it. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the failure. Somebody who can still be taught, somebody who can still be rebuked and take it is better than a person of great power who thinks they know everything. That's a problem. So we have three men whose hearts and heads were the downfall of themselves as well as the people that followed them. Every one of those men, God made king. I want you to notice two simple points about this. Don't get excited. That doesn't mean the message is shorter. And I know that because I preached it this morning. First of all, with the state of the nation, we see the people's, the nation's wicked kings in what they did. The Bible said of Solomon back in chapter 11 and verse 6, and uh, yeah, chapter 11 and verse 6, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Now that's the king that got it going. Of Rehoboam, it says in 2 Chronicles 12, 1, and it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Never underestimate the power of influence. Young people, never underestimate the power of influence upon your own life. If you're not careful, you'll be led astray by friends. Please understand that. They tell us that peer pressure is absolutely the strongest pressure that teenagers have to face. You don't just go this way because you've got a few friends who are walking in rebellion and this is what they want to do and it sounds cool to you. Don't be led astray. Singles, you better be careful about this too. It is easy to be influenced. Be careful. This is why you need something outside of yourself in order to make the proper decisions. And that which is outside of yourself is the word of God. Always determine, determine right up front. You'll save yourself a lot of problems in life if you determine that this book is God's book. And God's book is right about anything that it says anything about. That's why it's important you get settled on the King James Bible. Otherwise, if you just take any old thing that comes along, 
all those others change the words, changing the words, you change the thoughts. Some, some of those things are absolutely so ridiculous. They leave out verses, passages, half verses, and all of that and think somehow it's okay. And it's not. Don't be a dummy. Do not be a dummy. By the way, then we come to Jeroboam. Now, God tells us a few things about Jeroboam after he becomes king. Go over to chapter 14. Notice beginning in verse 7. Now, Jeroboam, you know, is not of the line of Judah. And God is allowing this man to be king over the northern tribes. Notice in chapter 14, beginning in verse 7, the scripture says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, For as much as I exalted thee from among the people, and made thee prince over my people Israel, and rent the kingdom away from the house of David, and gave it thee, and yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in mine eyes, but hast done evil above all that were before thee, for thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and has cast me behind thy back. You see how God looks at disobedience to him. Here he had some great things lined up for Jeroboam and Jeroboam lost it all. He lost it all because he decided he was going to do what felt right to him. We'll cover that in more detail in just a bit. Go down to verse 16. It says, and he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. There's going to be judgment on the house of Jeroboam. As a matter of fact, his firstborn dies. Then his first son after the one that died, Nadab, becomes king. In chapter 15 and verse 16, it says of him that he did evil and walked in the way of his father Jeroboam. Now Nadab ends up getting killed by a man by the name of Baasha. Baasha becomes the next king of the northern kingdom. And the Bible says of him, he did evil and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And he did, and then it says of Jeroboam, uh, let's see, in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 2. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a totally different king later on. And followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. And then in chapter 14 and verse 24 of 2 Kings, we find a statement made about Jeroboam the second. He's the second man named Jeroboam who was made king over the northern kingdom. It says of him, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Even decades later, even uh, scores of years later, we find God, when referring to the kings doing evil, always compared him to Jeroboam, this first king who had an opportunity to start out a kingdom correctly, and he didn't do it. And for that would be judgment, and he would be famous for the evil that he would do. Now, those are the kings. We see the kings of the people, but that is no excuse for the people doing and allowing what they ended up doing and allowing. For instance, we had wicked people even before the split came. 
Notice how God describes Judah in 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 22. In 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 22, the Bible says, And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. They provoked the Lord to jealousy. He's going to explain the things that he's talking about. I'll remind you that before they ever got the land, God told them in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 15, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. God is a jealous God. He wants complete worship from us. He doesn't take second place. He is always first place. It's why Jesus said the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now listen, you ladies, there is no way that if your husband came home tomorrow and said, you know, I really love you. I love you and put another lady's name in there. I love you both so much. I'm sure that would not be a good night in your household. That would be, un if you had a brain in your head, that would be totally unacceptable to you. Isn't that right? Shouldn't be hard to understand. That's pretty easy. Well, there is only one God. And God doesn't share top spot with anybody. He is God. And we need to understand that. Young people, you need to understand that early. Singles, you need to understand that early in your life. Parents, you need to understand that early in your life. What God says about the home, whatever he says about the home. You can throw away Dr. Spock, and I'm not talking about Star Trek. You can throw away Dr. Joyce and Dr. Lore. You can throw away all their books. You've got a Bible. Find out how your home is to be run and run it according to the scripture. Amen. Just obey God. God is always right. He demands first place. Well, so let's get back to this. He says, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. Now notice, for they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. Now that is one of the things that was done by the people of the land before God gave the land to Israel. God gave them instruction about, about uh, worship and what was acceptable worship to him. Now, we find only a few of the kings that decided to do right in the sight of the Lord, and only kings from Judah did that. Nine of the 19 did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Some of them put away the high places and the groves. Most of them did not. In other words, they were willing to get right about certain things, but not everything. We don't want to be too fundamental. Because we all know if you're too fundamental, that's not loving. If that's the case, are you saying that God's not loving? I mean, think about it for a moment. If God's word is too harsh, I mean, that's God's word. Is his word too harsh because God's not loving? Now, very few people will make that admission. They'll say, well, the pastor, the pastor's not loving. He just wants to go right by the book. Well, the book's from a loving God. What we're trying to do 
is avoid God from being jealous at us for not honoring him like we should. We put him first. We hold his word up. After all, he's exalted his word above his name, according to Psalm 138. So notice, they're, they're going to the groves. I mean, these were people who uh, probably said things like this. Well, I believe you can worship God out on the lake while you're fishing, just as much as in the church house. Well, I believe that I can worship God just as much on the golf course on Sunday morning as what I can in the church house on Sunday morning. Well, let me tell you something. I, I really doubt that you're worshiping God on the golf course. Now, there's no doubt on Sunday morning all over this land, God's name is used on the, on the golf course. But it's not in worship. Do you understand that? Jesus told the, the woman at the well, he told her, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And he says in verse 24 of John chapter 4, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he continues. He says, for they, uh, and there were also sodomites in the land and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. When God took Israel into the land, Israel got it because the cup of iniquity was full of the people who lived in the land. And he had warned them before he ever got them into the land in Leviticus chapter 18 that they were not to do the abominations of the people that were in the land or they would defile the land and God would scatter them just like the nations that were in there. Now, let me show you. Go back to Leviticus chapter 18. Keep your hand here. Now, remember the verses we were just reading in 1 Kings were, consider, were about Judah. Judah, the southern kingdom. I mean, when we're talking about the problems between Judah and the northern kingdom in the passage that we're reading tonight, there were no good guys. It's not like the southern kingdom was good, the northern kingdom was bad. They were both bad. You understand? One side doesn't wear a white hat. Ride a white horse. They're both bad. So Leviticus chapter 18, he tells us in verse 24, after going through a list of the sins, and I'll not take time to read those tonight, but in verse 24, he tells Israel, defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you, and the land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done which were before you, and the land is defiled. That the land spew not you out also, when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them, shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore shall ye keep mine ordinances, 
that ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that ye defiled not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. Now that's way back in Leviticus. Now here we are. We've gone through all the years of the judges. We've gone through First and Second Samuel. Uh, we had one king, Saul. His pride, of course, he lost the kingdom. And then David comes along, then Solomon. And then you've got Rehoboam and Jeroboam, of course, for the northern kingdom takes over. But this statement about the people of Judah, the things that they were allowing, and they did according to all the abominations uh, of which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Sin is a serious matter to God. Israel and Judah owed their position in the land of promise to God, to God's work, to God's deliverance. Solomon owed his position as king to God. Rehoboam owed his position of king to God. Jeroboam owed his position of king to God. But they became kings and they acted like God hadn't done anything. When God's the one who made him kings. Judah's in the land because of God. You would think they would appreciate that. You may remember the message I preached that it's not about the land. It was not about the land. It was giving God's people a place where they could be in control and worship God like God wanted them to worship him. But they got into the land, wouldn't put away their false gods, and never did get to where they worshiped him like they should worship him. Wouldn't it be great if there'd be a church in North Alabama that decided we're going to worship God according to God's book? We're going to obey his word. I believe that would be a blessing to the Lord. So we look at the people of Judah. They're in as bad a sin as was the people that were in the land before God gave it to Israel. Well, what about the people then of the northern kingdom? I mean, you go to chapter 12. Jeroboam is now king. Back to chapter 12, verse 28. Got the wrong verse down here. Let me, let, me, let me back up a minute. What chapter did I say? 12? That's, that was my problem, I think. Let me just look here. It's funny. I didn't have a problem with it this morning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chapter 12. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Verse 28. I was right the first time. Well, it's my first mistake this year. I thought I'd made a mistake and I hadn't. How about that? <laughs> Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I need to give the background to this. So let me back up to verse 25 and read through. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice 
in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto the Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Let me stop right there. No, they wouldn't. God wouldn't allow it. God has divided the land. He's thinking. He's reasoning with himself. He's about to do something that is totally against the word of God, and he's trying to come up with an argument to justify it. If I let this continue with our people going down to Jerusalem, they'll get back to Jerusalem. They'll love the temple. They'll love the friends and the neighbors that they see. And they'll end up wanting to stay there or stay with them. They'll come up and kill me. No, they won't, Jeroboam. Trust God. He gave you the kingdom. He's already made certain statements about it. Couldn't happen. It's kind of like in 1 Samuel chapter 27, when David started reasoning with himself, the Lord, our, uh, Saul's going to kill me. I better go to the Philistines. Saul couldn't kill him. Saul had tried to kill him several times, and he couldn't do it. David was God's anointed. He couldn't kill him. And he goes down to the Philistines and stays with the Philistines for a year and a half. You don't see him worshiping at the altar. You don't see him doing any great thing at that time because he got out of the will of God by reasoning wrongly. That's the whole problem with the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, what we're reading here is what is right or was right in the eyes of Jeroboam. Not with God, though. So notice it says, verse 28, now, whereupon the king took counsel, he made two calves of gold. Shouldn't that just scream to us, there's a problem here? He made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, that's in the southern part. He set the other in Dan, all right? I put the other in Dan. Now, Dan was initially given the area that was bordered by the Philistines. But they couldn't conquer the land like they wanted to. They eventually moved up to the northern part of the northern kingdom, closer to Syria. So you've got one in the south, one altar in the south, you got one in the north. And this thing became a what? A sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places. Now look at this. And made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. The priests. All the priests were to be of Levi, the priest of God. Now, I don't know what you call this worship, but this wasn't worship of the God of the Bible. This is idolatry. This is wrong. This is sin. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. So he offered a feast that would be the same. You got an altar? Hey, we got an altar down there. Uh, we've got sacrifices here. You don't have to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to have feast days. You got feast days down there. You don't have to go so far. You know what he's offering them? 
He's offering them a religion of convenience. A religion, it won't cost you as much. This is where I believe you've got to be careful about live streaming. Now, it's one thing to be sick and be home and you got to watch it because you can't get out. It's another thing you could get out and get with God's people, but you stay, you stay in your motel room or in your house or someplace else. Man, you travel. Make sure you're in the house of God someplace. Assembling with the church. Assembling with God's people. If you're not careful, you will end up adopting a, a religion, a faith of convenience instead of dedication to God. So what if you got to travel a little bit further? But if you've got to travel a little bit further to get into a place that holds to the word of God, then travel it. You say, but man, it costs. They didn't have gas prices in those days. No, they probably had to stop at a restaurant more often than what you do. Some other things they didn't have as well. But listen to me. God can take care of all the costs. He's, he's got commands on how to worship. So we find the religion of convenience is what they're soaking in. And what they're soaking up, which is a real shame. So Jeroboam ordains the feast. And he says, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month, even to the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast. Where does the king have that right? Where does the king have the right to create an altar? It's not the king that has any right. This is something to be done by the priest at the instruction of God. He hasn't heard from God saying, God said you better do this because they're going to start going down Jerusalem. They'll come back and kill you. No, no. He worked that all out in his own head. You come up with any reason to disobey God, you're wrong. Any reason to disobey God. You're wrong. God's word is right about everything it says anything about. That's why my life's verse, Psalm 119, 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Listen, if you're going to deal with somebody who's going to depart from the word of God, why even attend? Why even go? You're not honoring God. They would not be honoring God going to Dan or Bethel, either altar or both. God hates it both. It's all sin. The king did it. But I want you to get this. The people went along with it. We don't find a Daniel among them to stand up and say, no, sir. We are not going to worship another God. Don't care who the king is. We don't have a king like Daniel, or we don't have a, 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 a man of God like Daniel was who purposed in himself that he'd not defile himself with the king's meat. How we need some teenagers make up their mind. They're not going to defile themselves with the filth of this world, with the terrible music of this world. They're not going to defile themselves with the whoremongering harlotry of the day. They're not going to do it. You've got to make up your mind. But here in this whole nation, we don't have anybody standing up and saying the king's wrong. God's got to call a man of God from down in Judah to go up to rebuke the king. Not only that, we don't have a Shadrach, Meshach, nor Abednego who wouldn't bow at a false altar. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember, they were offered the choice. They were commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down before the, the idol of King Nebuchadnezzar when any musical instrument played. They said they wouldn't do it. He said, I'll give you one more chance. Your God's not going to be able to protect you. And they responded, our God can protect us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. You don't find any of those in Israel. That's a situation that took place over in Babylon. But here they are in their homeland, and they can't even stand. There's not a priest ordained of God among them to stand. Isn't it something? He makes the lowest of the people who were not even Levites to be priests, and we don't find any Levites standing up and saying, No! That's not right. None of them willing to stand. There's not a Moses to protest. There's not a Levite to stand. Now, in spite of the fact, by the way, if you were to go back to Joshua chapter 21, Joshua chapter 22, that most all of the tribes of the northern kingdoms had cities that were given specifically to the Levites. They had Levites by the thousands throughout the entire ten tribes. None of them are standing up against the king. None of them are raising their voices. Their subservience is deafening. And even when they heard the word of God, even when they heard God's curse upon the altar that he made, that'll be in chapter 13, they don't turn around and leave. They stay there still watching the show. Where are the people? But it kind of reminds you of the churches. You know how the music changes a lot in the churches? Tell you how it does it. They start thinking, well, you know, our Sunday night numbers are down. We need to bolster them a little bit. A lot of our young singles, they don't come at night. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a contemporary service so that we can reach the teenagers and the singles. And what we're going to do is we're going to play the worldly music. We'll put some Christian words with it. And the, the older Christians that are there, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this story. The older Christians that are there, they don't like it. But they recognize they got to do something to reach the teens. If you've got to have rock music to reach your teens, you've already lost your teens. Do you understand? What's sad is many times those older Christians, well, they don't want to rock the boat. They're not going to say anything. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to take a stand. Nobody likes somebody just rock the boat. I'll tell you how these transitioning people who are trying to get King James Bible-believing churches to change, they go into a church with the plan of getting them to change. They don't let people know their position till they get in. And then they get in and they start out with just a few. And it's not long. They're starting to read from the NIV or they're starting to read from the New King James or they're starting to read from the ESV and thinking, my, isn't this wonderful? Suddenly, the people who have sacrificed to build that building, to try to win souls, to be a lighthouse in that area, they find themselves outnumbered in their own church. And the pastor's getting up and reading from another translation. Doesn't read like what they read. Doesn't say the same thing that they've been hearing all of their life and that they have sacrificed for. And if they do tend to get up and say anything, they're told they're the problem. They need to leave. 
instead of firing that sorry traitor rascal who has gone in there subversively, tried to change the church because he couldn't go out and get a crowd on his own. That's what goes on. That's what's happening. We're losing our churches because that kind of deception is allowed. And it's the fundamentalist who's considered the bad guy because he takes a stand. If you were to take a look at Rick Warren's book on Purpose Driven Church, he says the problem with the older Christians is that they are the pillars that are holding up the church. And what he meant by that was holding them up to keep them from advancing. No, those older people are the pillars of the church, buddy. They're on a firm foundation. They're the ones the church needs. I mean, good night. You realize, why, why would anybody come into Madison Baptist Church, try to change us to be looser, to just do away with some of the things that we preach against? You've already got a myriad of churches around here have already done away with all that stuff. Go over there. Don't bother us. Leave us alone. We know what we believe. But the people that really believe that, you know, there's a time coming. Madison Baptist Church got to choose another pastor. And I do believe this. Every church is one pastor away from going liberal. You better know what you believe. You allow that mess in, that's on you. You can get upset with the new preacher that comes in all you want, but you ought to check him out before you call him in. Somebody say amen right there. Amen. Right there, I said. Amen right there. All right. Anyway, even after they heard the word of God, of course, they didn't speak up. A lot of people like that in our churches today, in spite of the New Testament admonition. Turn over, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Man, this stuff is too good. It's too good. Notice Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. And this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you. Now he's writing to the church at Ephesus. Please get that. Writing to the church, he says, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness. But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now he tells us in 1 John we're to walk in the light as he is in the light. That God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we're going to start walking in the gray areas, we're walking in partial darkness. That's not where we're to be walking. We're children of the light. Now notice the next verse, powerful verse. For the fruit of the Spirit. You see, Galatians is not the only passage that deals with the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and what? Truth. Truth. All right, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Some things are acceptable and some are not. Then he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame to speak of those things which are done in secret, 
But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, that is, made known by the light. That's the idea. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. So the fruit of the Spirit is in goodness and righteousness and truth. Jesus said, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is the key. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Man, we're all about truth. And if we're all about truth, then we'll be all about the righteousness of God. We'll be all about the holiness of God. We'll be all about the grace of God. We'll be all about the love of God. But if you're not committed to truth, you're using a Hollywood type of uh, perverted love instead of the love as God describes it in the Bible. It's God who is love, who says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Yes, the God of love is also a God of wrath. Wow. The God of grace judges. So here's a people with no biblical conviction. They're just going with the flow. These are the people who simply wanted a religion of convenience, willing to worship their own way. One way is as good as another, after all, to them. They're willing to give. They're willing to follow. But as long as it's not righteousness. There are people willing to go to churches. They'll put all kinds of money in the plate. As long as they don't tell me not to do something I really want to do. Got to go to a church that I feel never judges me. Well, I got news for you. If you go to a real, honest-to-goodness, Bible-preaching church, the Word of God's going to judge you. And since the pastor's to preach the whole counsel of God, there are times you're going to feel judged. Now, God loves the sinner, but He sure doesn't love His sin. And He doesn't want His people walking in sin. Kind of reminds me of the Corinthians. I mean, this is really strange. Um, at Corinth, the first four, ver- or first four chapters all deal with the fact that that church was in division. They were divided over the preachers that they had heard. Some were followed Apollos. Some followed Peter. Some followed Paul. And all of those men agreed with the same. They, they were in agreement. They weren't divided, but the people were divided over men. And he says, I spoke unto you as under carnal uh, and not under spiritual. He says, for there is envying and strife and division. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now, here they were divided about what they should have been unified on. But then what they were unified on in chapter 5, they had a man taken in adultery with his father's wife. And he says to them, and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. So he tells them the next time you come together, turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. They were proud about how they allowed this kind of activity among their membership. And the Holy Spirit of God uses Paul to tell them that's wrong. Kick him out. How is that love? A little leaveneth, leaveneth the whole lump. And you're trying to keep the body without the leaven, that's for sure. You see, the problem is here, 
to these people in Israel at, at the time of this passage in chapter 12. Unfortunately, they're willing to do away with true worship for a worship that won't be quite so strict. When you do away with true worship, which true worship always according to God's word, it doesn't matter how you worship, your worship's in vain from that point on. Now, for instance, you've got examples in the Old Testament. And uh, I told you there are only two points. And sounds like a ten-point message, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel had been taught, well, Adam and Eve had too, for that matter, about the blood sacrifice. Cain brought a sacrifice of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought a blood sacrifice to God. God had respect unto Abel's sacrifice and not unto Cain's. Cain was angry. God says to him, why art thou wroth and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, wilt thou not be accepted? But if not, behold, sin lieth at the door. He says, Cain, why are you angry? God had already taught him about sacrifice, the importance of a blood sacrifice. He knew the right kind to bring. It just wasn't he, what he wanted to bring. He wanted to bring what he wanted to bring. And if God doesn't like it, that's just tough. He'll have to deal with it. Well, I got news for you. You'll never win that battle. You can go ahead and be rebellious like that to God, but he's got final say. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Then in Exodus chapter 32, as a matter of fact, the situation with Aaron in Exodus chapter 32 reminds me an awful lot of the situation with Jeroboam and the two altars that he makes. You remember Moses has been up on the mount praying for 40 days. The people come to Aaron. They say, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Up, make us gods that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And so he said, all right, bring in all your jewelry. Bring in all your earrings, everything else. He melts it all down. He makes a calf. He makes the calf and he says, tomorrow we'll have a feast to Jehovah. But that calf was not Jehovah. That calf was not the one who brought him out of the land of Egypt. That was all a lie. When God saw it, the Bible uses this terminology. And God's wrath waxed hot. When Moses saw the anger of Almighty God, he asked God what was going on. And God says to him, I will go down and destroy those people and I will make of you a great nation. Had Moses not prayed for those people, we would not be calling them Israel today. We'd be calling them Moses today. Now, it's hard for us to even imagine, but that's what God says in chapter 32. Interestingly, when Moses came down the mount with the two tables of stone, and he sees that calf and the people dancing around it, much like they do in these smoke-filled auditoriums around Huntsville and Madison, and sees the shame of what they're doing, he throws the tablets down and says, who is on the Lord's side? And we find the Levites coming out saying, we're on the Lord's side. He said, gird up your, uh, gird up your swords and go about. And they killed 3,000 of the Israelites. Now, it's interesting that when Aaron comes to Moses, he says, why doth thy wrath wax hot? Here's the difference between Moses and Aaron, by the way. Moses had just spent 40 days with the Lord. 
Aaron had just spent 40 days with the people. Aaron, because all of his time had been with the people. And here's Aaron, the high priest. He represented God. When they first came to him, he should have rebuked them. And he did not. He's falling in with them. The people are happy. That's all that counts. Make the people happy. I tell you, a man of God, a true man of God, cannot worry about making the people happy. When he gets up to preach, he better make God happy with what he has to say. That's why it's got to be according to the word of God. Now, I don't preach to run people off, but I don't preach to keep people either. If you get mad at what I'm preaching and I'm just preaching the Bible, that's on you. In Joshua chapter 7, after the defeat of Jericho, you remember that Joshua got the plans on how to defeat, Jer- defeat Jericho from God, from the captain of the, Lord's, of the Lord's host. Now, the next day, they said, let's go take Ai. It's a little city. We don't need to take everybody. 3,000 of us will do. They don't go to God for battle plans. And so when they get out there without having gone to God, they get out in the battle, 36 of them die right away, and they all start running like a bunch of cowards. What was the problem? They didn't ask God, what should we do? Because he would have told them then, there's sin in the camp. You can't go out till it gets taken care of. But they didn't seek God. And then later in Joshua chapter 9, when the people of Gibeon come down, Gibeonites were not that far away from them, and they were told not to make league with any people of the land. They were to destroy them all. But you remember the Gibeonites, they put on old clothes. They put on old shoes. They took some bread that had been made days before, covered it up with dust, took it in, and they told the children of Israel, we've heard about what God's done with you people, and we want to make a league with you. We're from far, far away. They don't pray and ask God. I mean, after all, it looks pretty obvious, doesn't it? Look how old their clothes are. Look how old their shoes are. Look how old that bread is. Hey, these people are from a long ways away. We can make a league with these people. And when they do, God has to rebuke them for not seeking his face. You see, we don't find Solomon seeking the Lord in his latter days. We don't find Rehoboam seeking the Lord. We don't find Jeroboam seeking the Lord. But they're not the first. Others have done that, and by the way, they're also not the last. In Joshua chapter 22, the two and a half tribes are going back over. Remember, they went into the land with the rest of Israel. They had already decided that they were going to stay on the east side of the Jordan. So they are now done fighting. They've basically got the land under control And now they're going back to the other side of the land. And Israel says, goodbye, take care of yourself, see you later. They get over by the Jordan and they come up with this idea. They don't get it from God. They come up with this idea. You know, after a while, people are going to say, the people over here are going to say, you're not part of Israel. And what we're going to do is we're going to build a nice high altar, not to sacrifice but to be a witness, and they named that altar Ed. Ed means literally witness. And that will be proof to them that we were, were still part of Israel. When Israel hears about the altar, they're upset. They come up, they're going to fight them. They're going to take them out. And they said, listen, here's the reason why we did it. And it sounded good to them, 
But even then, the children of Israel don't seek the Lord. The two and a half tribes didn't seek the Lord before they built the altar. The Israelites, when they come, they don't seek the Lord. That sounded reasonable to them, so they said, okay. Guess who were the first Israelites to go into apostasy? People on the east side. That altar may mean that to you now. What's it going to mean to the next generation? When there's one altar they were to be concerned about, that was the altar of the Lord down at Shiloh at that time. Wasn't in Jerusalem yet. You see, none of this was sanctioned by God. So we find that the kings themselves brought about the, the nation's divide, but the reality is it's exactly what the people deserved. No matter who the king is, pagan or somebody who claims to be Christian, if he's going to lead contrary to God's word, God's people need to say something. Not going to be popular, but like I said about the gambling thing, I'd rather stand for right and be defeated than win standing for wrong. And God's people got to get to the place where they make up their mind. How did we ever get to a place in just a few short years with all this nonsense, transgenderism and all of that, how do we ever get to that? The stuff where you got guys playing basketball against a bunch of girls saying they're really female. And they're no more female than the barn is. And they get away with that. How in the world did they get away with that? Because we've got a bunch of adults who've been trained in, in woke ideology and theology. And they don't have a clue what's what. But all we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 1 and find out God made them male and female. Amen. That's it. There's nothing else. And you can feel all kinds of things. That doesn't make you that. Amen. So we find the nation's divided now. And for them, it's only going to get worse. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll take the things that we've read tonight and drive them home to our hearts. May we understand the importance of standing for truth. Would to God we'd raise up a bunch of young men who are going to stand for truth. They don't have to be popular. They don't have to be acceptable, acceptable to the majority. They're, they made up their mind. They're going to stand for truth. Young ladies that are going to stand for truth. A church that will stand for truth. Families, moms and dads that will stand for truth and bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God, have your way in lives tonight, we pray in Jesus' name.